Hello and welcome to The Stack. Today's show is a treat from a fascinating book about documentaries by veteran film journalist Ian Hayden-Smith to Sudan's first digital fashion zine and the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, proving how a local paper is essential for a community. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a fascinating book from veteran film journalist Ian Hayden-Smith. Uh, with a foreword from award-winning director Sif Kapadia, he explores a hundred of the most compelling documentaries with power to radically change our perceptions and challenge the way we see the world. I had a lovely chat with Ian in studio. Ian Hayden-Smith, welcome to Monocle 24. Uh, first of all, what a brilliant book, well-documented. It's the essential documentaries that prove the truth is more fascinating than fiction. First of all, it's interesting because I haven't seen actually a book that have a list of documentaries. It's it, it's quite interesting to have a list. Tell me about the idea. Did you always want to do this? or? Yeah, I'm, I've written and talked about film for a very long time now and had an ongoing fascination with documentaries since I was young. Obviously, really, it's the last 20 years that that documentary has come back in vogue in cinemas. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, it was the mainstay of television. And it still is, particularly with streaming. But I think you could look back to the popularity of Michael Moore's films, Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9-11, suddenly sparked this great interest. And alongside those films were a whole bunch of others. The films of James Marsh, such as Man on Wire, and other films coming out, Asif Kapadia, who writes the foreword to this book, his Senna was a really, really big success. And subsequent films he's made on Maradona and Amy Winehouse have also proven successful critically and commercially. So there's been this thing in the ether, this interest in documentary film. And it's a publisher that I was working with approached me initially and said, we've got this idea about doing a documentary book. And... It was sparked by the fact that even though there's a plethora of how to make a documentary guides out there, and there are some academic books, some a little dry, some absolutely fascinating, but really it's going back to the 1990s and a Faber book that was edited by Mark Cousins and the now filmmaker Kevin MacDonald, who's in this book with Touching the Void, they worked on a book on documentary from around the world, bringing together interviews with filmmakers, articles written by critics over the decades, going all the way back to the filmmakers that emerged out of the Russian Revolution in the late teens into the early 1920s. And it's a fantastic book, but it's amazing to think in the 25 years in between, there really hasn't been a book that covers a wide terrain of documentary. Especially, as you're saying, in recent decades. I mean, documentaries, they're booming, as you mentioned, yep. the Michael Moore books. And even the cinema industry itself, I don't think it's weird for a documentary to be nominated for more than one Oscar. I mean, they can even go to the bigger categories now as well. well I think There's a you, sense of respect more Definitely. I think you look last year, there's mm. a Scandinavian film mm. that was internationally produced called Flea which is an animated documentary about a young man who left Afghanistan and traveled across the world till he finally ended up in Denmark and about the troubles he had along the way. 
that was being mooted as a best animated film, a best documentary film, and a best film potential nominee. So there is this major crossover. And I would say there are a number of things. There are a number of trends over the course of the last 20 years that have had a huge impact. I definitely think the environment is a major, major Mm -hmm. issue. Obviously, politics has always proven popular with documentaries. And music films, you only have to look back on the last year and a half, Summer of Soul, which is an astonishing documentary about the Harlem Cultural Festival happening at exactly the same time as Woodstock, completely overlooked until Questlove took all this incredible material and turned it into this Oscar-winning film. And also Peter Jackson's film, Get Back, the the Beatles documentary, the epic six-hour documentary, which is one of the most fascinating musical documents and completely transforms or challenges the view that people had about the Beatles at that moment in time. Okay, there was an original film made at the time that was about 90 minutes long, but that kind of didn't really tell the full story. And what Jackson's done is take all that material, put it together and create something quite wonderful. The list is excellent, but I I was wondering, were there any rules about which films or which documentaries you should include? Of course, there's not space for everything. I mean, I I think we're even talking about some films perhaps didn't make it, but any rules or? There There were no rules. I think what we wanted to do is to be as expansive as possible within the limitations that we had. So the, the first thing was that we were going to try and limit ourselves to 100 films. Then I took some liberties and said, well, if we're doing 100 films, why don't we say that these films would be a minimum of 45 minutes long that would allow us to include 20 shorts or anything less than 45 minutes, particularly because I wanted to include a film like Alain René's Nuit Brouillard about the Holocaust, which is an incredibly important film. So that was one of the things. But we also wanted to try and cover as much as we could the widest possible terrain in terms of gender, in terms of diversity of countries and topics. And yes, we have these subjects, but originally we had a few other areas. Sport was a completely separate area till we realized that so many sports films are dealing with social issues that actually they could be incorporated within much larger topics, which is what we've done. And the other thing is... A lot of books that perhaps deal with the practical side of filmmaking will talk about feature filmmaking. And what we wanted to do is to blur the line between feature theatrical releases and television releases and also serial documentaries. So that could be anything from the Carl Sagan astronomy or cosmology documentary series Cosmos through to David Attenborough's Life on Earth, which is the the groundbreaking natural history documentary series, all the way through to Making a Murderer, the huge Netflix hit. You mentioned 100 films, but for example, I just opened a page here, The Beatles, Get Back, but then also see, so you actually give even more tips for people, which I think is quite nice as well, because maybe, okay, maybe I've seen Get Back, maybe I should watch as well Rolling Thunder Review, for example. Yeah, so Uh, the idea behind, hmm. again, it was something that my attempt to squeeze in as much as possible. Each film, each feature film that we talk about would be cross-referenced with another film within the book, but we also included three others that not necessarily by the same director or even perhaps not even the the same genre or same subject, but they would have a thematic thread. So it would allow people to create this. In a way, it's imagine a huge tapestry. And I think we've got some of the big images. And what we're trying to do is then fill in the details from there.
Well, so many of my actually personal favorite documentaries are in there. Grey Gardens, Rise by David LaChapelle. Oh, so wonderful. I was really happy actually to see. Uh, do you have a favorite? I mean, that that's actually the tricky question I told you I was going to ask. I, I'm glad you mentioned Rise. I, I think David LaChapelle's photography is incredible. Mm. These amazing saturated Stanley images. Film, yeah. And what I love is that he obviously, it's based on, like many documentaries, it's based on the original short that he created about uh, clowning and crumping these two dance stars that came out of Compton in Los Angeles. And it just expanded into a feature. And I remember seeing it in the cinema and just thinking, I've, I've just never seen anything like this in terms of the images. And you have this... It's, it's not a disclaimer or a warning. You have this bit of text at the beginning saying that there are no tricks or effects. It, it felt like the, visual effects. The way that people yeah. are moving because the speed at which they move. I mean, a lot of people at one point in time would have recognized that dance style because it was used in an Apple advert and you see these silhouettes moving around. And one of the women who appears in the film, who's one of the most extraordinary crumpers, actually was one of the people who went on to that Apple advert. That's certainly a favourite. I would say Lamel Ross's Hale County This Morning, This Evening, which came out a few years ago, pushes at the boundaries of what we see as documentary. And it's a portrait through a series of seemingly unconnected shots of life in this town, in the county of Hale in Alabama. And it's just, it's one of the most beautiful films because it, rather than connect images through a narrative that's being told, sometimes the images are connected by what you see on the screen. And occasionally they're just, the images are quite beautiful. I haven't seen that one, so thank it's you for thank film. you for the tip. And one thing for me about some documentaries as well, it's almost about myth creation. Of course, in sport you see this a lot, but even in fashion, you look at September issue. Yeah. I mean, it just established Anna Winter even more as this kind of such a powerful f figure in the fashion industry. Well, I, I think that's that's a really good example mm. of a film that I was originally approached by the publishers with the idea of that. Mm. Let's let's include September issue. It's mm. a really popular film. Mm. We need to cover all bases. And I saw it when it came out, and I liked it. But I thought, oh, come on, really? I'm not sure. And I went mm. back and watched it. And mm. what really amazed me with the film, and it comes back to this idea that, I'm going to paraphrase Alfred Hitchcock here, that when you're making a narrative, a fiction film, the director is God. But when you're making a documentary film, God is the director. You can't always tell which way the film is going to go. And so what we ostensibly have is a portrait of Anna Wintour, or begin with a portrait of Anna Wintour, her time at Vogue, the production of this one important issue in the year. But then suddenly the director meets Grace Coddington, mm. the creative director, and she kind of takes over. And I'm sure when they went into it, they had no idea that she would become such a huge presence. And you have another film, another favourite of mine from recent years, Exit Through the Gift Shop, mm. the Banksy documentary, where Banksy was fascinated by this guy who wanted to make a film about him, but he was such an awful filmmaker that Banksy actually took over making the film and made it about the guy. And the result is, it's one of those things I love with documentary. It's the things that you can't pin down. They don't exist in any category. F for Fake by Orson Welles is another example. It's not an essay film. It's not really a documentary. It's not a fiction film, but it's utterly engrossing. 
And I have to say, for the book, you had a foreword by Asif Kapadia. I mean, he's a fantastic director. He we is. mentioned uh, Senna here, but of course, Amy, who is on the cover. Tell us about your relationship with him. And so I first encountered Asif with his feature debut in 1990,000 called The Warrior, which is a glorious amalgam of Japanese samurai, Indian myth, just an incredible piece of filmmaking that has to be seen on the big screen in the widest possible screen. And I did an interview with him following that film. And over the years, I've sort of interviewed him on and off. I interviewed him for Senna, for Amy, and for his Maradona film. And oh, yeah, Maradona as well. I forgot yes. about Amazing, amazing. Yeah. And uh, interestingly, not looking at his whole career, but looking specifically at mm. the time he spent in Napoli, the controversies around that. And when we decided that Amy was going to be Asif's film that we, we would include in the book, I just thought he might be interested in writing a foreword to it because he's he's programmed a season of films at the Sheffield Doc Fest, which is one of the world's most important documentary festivals. And he's just a great knowledge and a passionate about cinema in all forms, but documentary particularly. And he said yes, and it was great. I feel very honoured that he would write the foreword to the book. He just feels like the perfect person to do that because of the documentary films he's made recently. But again, coming into this thing of, of people who don't exist in one category, who move between different worlds, and I think that's exactly what Asif does. That's fantastic. And, and you're still collaborating with him as well. We are, yes. What can you tell us about uh, partnership with the BFI? So in January and February, the BFI South Bank will be screening every film directed by the great Japanese director Akira Kurosawa, which is 30 films. The first one was made in 1943. His final one was made 50 years later in 1993. I mean, he's made some of the most important films of world cinema from Seven Samurai and Rashomon to Yojimbo, which was remade by Sergio Leone as A Fistful of Dollars. Obviously, Seven Samurai was remade as The Magnificent Seven. And what we did is worked, obviously, they're the 30 films. That's what the BFI is showing. But we thought rather than show them chronologically, we would split them into six categories, dealing with honour, with professional lives, with family and the esoteric films that exist outside. They have elements that you can see in all his work, but they also exist outside of any straightforward category. And so there are six themes, three showing each month between the beginning of Jan, end of Feb. And we'll be speaking, we'll be introducing some of the films. We're going to do a study day talking about Kurosawa's work. And what's really great with Asif is that I'm coming from the the passionate fan side. Mm. And Asif is coming from the filmmaker's side. And he's going to talk not only about the influence that Akira Kurosawa had over his own work, but also the nature of filmmaking. And Asif has a particular interest in the way that Asian and South Asian cinemas developed, where you have apprentices who come on board. That's not really as common in Western cinema. And it's something that Kurosawa really grew up in that system. So I think it's going to be really, really interesting. Hearing him talk, I'm looking forward to hearing him talk. There's some really incredible things like the BFI IMAX, which is the largest screen in the UK, is going to screen Seven Samurai, which is, I mean, on even on a small screen, it's pretty powerful stuff. On a screen that size, it's going to be extraordinary. And his book, Well Documented, is out now. You are listening to The Stack here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Guto Pacheco. And next year on the program, we turn our attention to one of those cities featured in Monaco's annual Small Cities Index, 
which is out now in the latest edition of The Forecast. In the city of Bozeman in the US state of Montana, which has a population of around 54,000 people, one of the fixtures of city life that anchors its quality of life is its daily newspaper, the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, which was established in 1883. Monocle's Thomas Lewis spoke to Mark Doby, the paper's publisher for the past five years, about how a print daily has continued to grow its print readership, where other smaller titles have struggled to do so. He began by describing the city his paper reports on. Montana is a genuine place, and it has a unique character. It's very outdoorsy. There are a lot of opportunities for hikes and going up into the mountains, a lot of wildlife. Yellowstone National Park to the south of us is awesome. You know, the off-season in Yellowstone in the wintertime is, was one of the most exceptional times to go see wildlife up there. It's just really remarkable. But mostly it's, it's the community. The, the people are very, it's a very friendly community. It's both open and tight-knit at the same time because people are just so Montana-friendly mm. around here. And there's been a lot of growth, so it's going through a few growing pains. Notably, you know, real estate is kind of out of touch for entry-level home buyers, and, and so hopefully that gets corrected soon. But, you know, just generally, it's just... It's an outdoor, it's a healthy place. It's a place where you can, it's walkable and rideable uh, with bikes. And, but, but at the same time, you know, it, just a short drive out into the country and, and you're in some of the most beautiful mountainous region that, that we have around here. I mean, we look to the south of us, Salt Lake City has two days a week that they're in print. And their cir print circulation has fallen dramatically. And, you know, other major metropolitans have seen the same. We're lucky to have an in-print delivery six days a week. We have a million-plus page views a month on our website. We have a paid digital subscription group that's growing at double digits every year, 20-plus percent growth. And we get people subscribing to the Bozeman Daily Chronicle from all over the country. People that are just interested in it, maybe it's an interest in the area or maybe they have connections here with family, but I see paid digital subscribers coming in from, you know, as far away as, as New York and Maine to Southern California and Texas and Louisiana and all over the place. So it's really, it's a good makeup where we distribute in the city. Our, our print readership is around 9,000 daily. And our digital paid readership is about 3,000 daily. And then, of course, the, the larger audience, uh, about 100,000 people visit our website every month. Because we focus on local content, and that's really where our journalists are focused, I think that we have that interest. And I think on top of that, people are just really interested in what uh, happens in their community. They're interested they're active in their community. There are a lot of people that are active in planning development, planning in how the city grows, planning in how resources are used. You know, open spaces are, are a big thing. We have a lot of open space within and outside the city. Just trying to preserve that and just being 
understanding of you know what's going on at the county level at the city level and with parks and recreation and and just the citizens i mean it, it's really rare that we have violent crime on the front page of the news mm-hmm. i mean it's more often than not we're reporting on something that's happening around growth or we're reporting on something that's happening around city politics or you know just something really cool that's happening up in the park or you know in the areas around us 95% of our work is just fact based no opinion reporting and so this place or other similar sized towns i've been in it's really important for the newspaper not to try to blur opinions in there and so our team works really hard to not do that and they don't and so this town I don't know if it makes it any easier or harder, but it, it certainly is something we're very cognizant of, that 90% of our job is just, you know, we don't want to tell people what, how to think or what to think about a particular issue, even if it's a hard issue, you know, outside of those opinion pages. And those are physically separated in the paper to their own section without advertising just on their own page, the opinions. And it's really more community board. We're lucky enough to have a lot of community members involved in that community editorial board that can share that diverse opinion. We constantly want to add the digital subscribers to to our base because that really is where more and more people are consuming their, their news is online. But I think in terms of growth plans, doing what we're doing, but making sure that our you know we capture all of the audience that has interest in news in Bozeman Montana and Belgrade Montana is important so as much as that audience wants to uh, grow with us that's where we'll grow you know on on that side and at the same time we're going to preserve our we have a large investment in print facilities behind that wall is a very large press facility and we print not only our paper, but several other papers across Montana. So we're very much invested in the print product as well. And in the last two years, our parent company has invested heavily in that. They've invested a lot of money in that facility to to make sure it's state-of-the-art, that it's efficient, and that we can uh, keep delivering a quality print product. That was Mark Dolby, publisher of the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, speaking to Monaco's Thomas Lewis. And you can read more about the city of Bozeman and the other cities featured in our Small Cities Index this year in this year's issue of The Forecast, which is available to buy now. And now, to Sudan's first digital fashion zine, Revout, bringing to you the inside story of Creative Sudan. Revout uncovers not only the fashion and lifestyle, but the hopes and beautiful diversity of Sudan by taking the reader on an engaging journey through the country's energy, designs, and resilience of its people. I spoke to the responsible for the project, Randa Hamid. Randa Hamid, welcome to Monaco 24. What a pleasure talking to you about Revout, which is a look at Sudanese fashion. First of all, tell us about where did the idea for Revolt comes from and if you can do a little introduction about the work you do as well. Thank you, Fernando, for having me in this amazing opportunity. My name is Randa Hamid. 
I am a Sudanese fashion designer and also businesswoman. I work in this project is called Moda Fashion Connects. It's a Sudanese project aiming at uh, developing the fashion sector in Sudan. It is the biggest project in fashion in Sudan. It is funded by the European Union and implemented by Goten Institute. So I am the project manager, also the initiator of this project. Five years ago, I have just noticed, I work also as a consultant for Goten Institute and and a partner for other cultural and artistic organizations. So I have more than eight years experience in arts and culture in Sudan. So I've just noticed that through my work that the fashion sector is not really looked at by a donor organization or even the government as a sector that can be a good investment for the country and also for individual. And I said, maybe now it's time to look at all these fashion designers. They were like scattered everywhere, but they are not connected in one place. We don't know them. We don't know their problems. We don't know their needs. And I believe because of the rich heritage of Sudan, they could become really good source of GDP and income for themselves. It could be an opportunity to push them, especially in Sudan. Young people use an economy in general is really suffering. And this is now time maybe to give focus for fashion as one of the promising industry in the world. So we did all the assessment and research on the ground and we came up with the idea and all the plan for this project, uh, Moda Connects. So it included a lot of activities, uh, trainings, um, networking, you know, and marketing and promotional events. So by the end, we could took the participant of the project. They were about 116 participants. They They benefited from all the courses we have delivered. So we said maybe we need to show to the world what we have done and in a way to celebrate fashion in Sudan. And here comes the idea of a magazine because one of the trainers, she suggested uh, Mrs. Anne. She was one of the main trainers of the program that maybe we need to do a digital representation of the whole project. By that, we can reach to a broader audience inside Sudan and outside Sudan, rather than just doing a catwalk by the end of the project where it would be mainly local. And here comes the idea where also we've partnered with Fashion Scout. This is an amazing, you know, opportunity for us also to get to know to Fashion Scout as a great supporter for the project. And it happens at the same time that Sudan is passing through a very special situation and circumstances related to the political issues. So it was also like a message to the world that we as Sudanese or artists, uh, we will always use peace as a message to come to our, you know, aim and objectives. And it's beautiful in the editorial letter of Revolt, the simple act of being a fashion designer Uh, perhaps in Sudan, is an act of defiance in itself. And it is defiant, and and it is a way for people to perceive the country with different eyes as well, because I think people, it's important to, you know, know, to acknowledge that there is a fashion industry in Sudan. It's it's challenging, but there's wonderful designers. I mean, the photo shoots and the clothing is amazing. I mean, you are actually a designer yourself, right? 
Yes, I am a fashion designer and I just started my brand like less than one year ago. And here I am establishing my own company and yeah, trying to do my best. And the clothes are beautiful. I mean, did you knew some of those designers or did you just discover it while doing this project? I love, I think there's a piece, there's a piece of like of kind of a, a lilac trousers in a male model. I really like that piece. Very beautiful. Actually, when we opened the application for the program, most of the, the participants, we know them beforehand because we had a lot of session and interview with them. So they applied. Many of them, they already studied in like college and uh, universities. Some of them, they were self-taught. They were in a good position. Actually, even before the project, they just didn't know how to be like a real fashion designer, how to do the business itself. So yeah, they, they are still, you know, a lot of fashion designer out there. They were not part of the program. We also had a Sudanese, some of the international fashion designer who are known internationally, but not so many actually. But now we are trying to present more international fashion designer of international, you know, caliber and standard. And I want to ask why the name Revolt? So first of all, we had an amazing team working in this magazine from journalists to content writer to editorial to graphic designer, everyone, they work together. And as I said in the beginning that we wanted to take this opportunity, of course, to tell the, the world about fashion in Sudan, but at the same time to highlight about the struggle we really lived in because of the ongoing revolution, people fight for their democracy and, and freedom. So these were like two facts uh, define our life at the moment. And the fact that revolution, because the rev is from revolution, because the revolution is still part of our life and it's revolution against many things in life. We, we lived before. It's a revolution for our democracy, for women's rights, for human rights, for our diversity. So many, many aspects. So we would like to show that we in Sudan, we are revolting against everything that we are not happy with. And that the, the art and fashion are the tool to show this kind of revolution. And here comes the word com a combination of rave out and out that we are going out to revolt and then Zion, which is, you know, short for magazine. That's amazing. And Randa, if people are interested to find out more about the project, where can they actually, you know, read the zine. And by the way, just uh, one idea, I mean, it would be lovely as well to have something print in the future, who knows, but, but where can people uh, ha have a look at Revolt? You can see our, the link for the magazine in Fashion Scout website and also in our Facebook. Uh, we had a Facebook and also an Instagram page where we have the link for people to have a look at the magazine. So our uh, website is called Uric Sudan, which is E-U-N-I-C, the same for Instagram also page. It is there and there are a lot of posts, a lot of photos, and not only in the magazine, and also in the post itself, in the pages, in social media. Thank you very much, Rwanda. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Adam Heaton. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. 
And we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco.